This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to get all the stuff I keep hectoring you to get. So I'm going to stop hectoring and just say, please go to thedispatch.com and you can find all sorts of Original stuff that's not in the newsletters, and plus you can f- see all the stuff you're missing if you're not a paid member of the community, and um, and you'd help our end-of-year numbers, which would be great, and you'd be doing a nice thing, and you'd be helping yourself, and every time you become a paid member of the Dispatch, an angel gets its wings, or something like that. Okay, so... Um, I wrote the G file on the early side today, and I'm a little worried that it's not very good. I don't know. I mean, I think the ideas are good in it, but I don't think it's necessary. Sometimes, you know, sometimes when you write for yourself, which is what I usually do with the G file, you sometimes end up spilling out a bunch of notes for something that um, could be something really good. And then uh, other times you think that you wrote something really good and people don't like it. And then other times you wrote something that you think isn't really good and people really do like it. So, uh, I'm hoping that's the circumstance with this one, but who knows, but it's still in my head. And so I'm going to spill out a little of it here as well. And maybe my explanation for what I was writing will get better. Um, but where to begin? I know here's a good place to begin and it's kind of serendipitous. So last night we had the dispatch virtual holiday party and it was very nice everyone uh brought a cocktail of their choice and um everyone signed in from all over the place and sort of grading on the curve it was a great holiday party but um grading on the curve of because it was a holiday party by remote given that's that what it was, it was great. But holiday parties by remote generally just suck. Um, they're not fun. You get so many people um, on. It's very difficult to know who can talk first. Um, everyone wants to be super polite. I think in, 
especially for, you know, the bosses. So they start saying something and then one of the kids starts saying something and then, um, I didn't realize that he was about to talk. So I start saying something and then they're like, Oh no, you go, you go. And I'm like, no, you go. And then there's this long silence because of the delays. And, um, it's just also freaking awkward. And I actually had an idea for a, maybe like a good drinking game at the first, uh, in-person holiday party next year, which we will probably have more in-person parties before the holidays next year because everyone is so eager to get back to the office and hang out together. We actually have a really pretty great office, you know, company culture. Um, and it's, it's funny how often people just say, I can't wait to, you know, for the day where we can all get back in the office again, because we have a lot of fun. And, um, but I had an idea for a part for a, sort of a party game where for like the first 10 minutes of the in-person holiday party, everyone has to talk in a big circle as if we were all doing it by remote and you have to like have weird, awkward pauses and say, no, you go, no, you go, no, it's okay. Go. No. Okay. I'll go. And then that kind of thing. I'm not exactly sure how you would score it. Um, but I'm just so sick of conversations by remote that, uh, I don't know. I thought it'd be kind of fun to do anyway. Um, during this conversation, I can't remember exactly how it came up, but we were talking about movies and, um, and I learned about fat man from our own Alec Dent, this, um, Mel Gibson movie about, uh, where he plays Santa, where he teams up with the U S military while he's being chased by an assassin. And I gotta say, it sounds a lot like the night the reindeer died from Scrooge where Steve Austin goes to the North pole to help out Santa as they're fighting off terrorists. Uh, but the trailer for uh, fat man looks even darker than that. Um, but I'm very excited about that. And so we were talking about movies and all that stuff. And at some point, someone asked David French, a man who I, um, cherish as a friend. Um, I am proud to have him as a colleague and who on issues on, of, of moral and legal and most political consequence, I find him to be, uh, not only wise, but persuasive most of the time. And we're on the same page on so many different issues, despite the fact that we have such different backgrounds. And then when he starts talking about movies, I often wonder whether or not I should start questioning his embrace of Judeo-Christian morality, the constitution and everything else. Cause he can be so wrong and he'll admit that he's a fan more than a critic of movies, which is a nice way to dodge his opinion about things like Aquaman. But anyway, uh, I think Steve asked him whether David ever saw a movie he disliked. And, you know, look, there are so many movies David could have listed that I would have agreed with him with. He could have said, um, I don't know, The Human Centipede or Caddyshack 2, which really was, I mean, in a more uh, enlightened society, the makers of Caddyshack 2 would have been put in chains. Um, he could have said, I don't know, a Bad Lieutenant, even though I think that was a well-crafted movie, but it's just so friggin' dark and gross. Um, he could have listed all the Saw movies and all of that sort of slasher porn stuff. But the man who says often with a straight face that Aquaman is 
a fantastic movie, said without a moment of hesitation, he, when, we asked, when he was asked, what do you think is a, uh, was there ever a movie you really didn't like? And without, a, without missing a beat, like he had prepared for this question, he said the movie They Live. Um, and I don't, I mean, I, I think longtime listeners know that I, I actually really like They Live. It's a John Carpenter movie from 1988. I've talked about how it's based on the short story. Um, uh, now I'm spacing it, like 10 Minutes to Midnight, I think it's called. And um, how funny it is that the guy who wrote that short story that the movie was based on, he's the guy who invented the propeller beanie. And, um, and it stars Ra Rowdy Roddy Piper, the 1980s uh, wrestling uh, hero. And... It has what, according to Wikipedia, I looked it up because um, I had to ask, uh, well, I, was, I wanted to show it to David and I also had to ask David for permission to reveal our holiday party uh, conversation given that, you know, that's supposed to be off the record, I think, as a matter of policy. So anyway, uh, I, you know, according to the Wikipedia page, the fight scene, which he singled out as like the worst thing in the movie this famous six minute fight scene in an alleyway. Um, and he said, that's the thing that he really hated because he thought it was the dumbest, worst fight scene he'd ever seen. Um, according to Wikipedia, it's listed on countless uh, best of lists for best fights among the best fight scenes in movies. Now I wouldn't go that far to say it's among the best fight scenes in movies because it's kind of campy and it's kind of a send up of professional wrestling and all that. But, uh, I think it's a glory to behold and definitely at least deserves an honorable mention in famous fight scenes. But to cite that as like the worst thing about the movie where I would have at least assumed he would think that's the best thing about the movie. Um, and the rest of the stuff he wouldn't like, I just found utterly bizarre. And, um, anyway, the way this is sort of serendipitous and I wouldn't have brought it up and outed David or further outed David's terrible, terrible judgment in film. Um, save for the fact that, uh, um, they live actually played a big part in how I was thinking about writing suicide of the West. And I talk about this in speeches. I'm sure I brought this up on the podcast. So in the movie, part of the pretense about it or part of the, the, the plot or the premise or some word that begins with P, um, Roddy, Roddy Piper, Rowdy, Roddy Piper plays a guy, um, sort of an everyman, hardworking, um, uh, who subscribes to all the bourgeois sort of rules of, you know, you know, work hard to get ahead, pursue the American dream, all that kind of stuff. Not, uh, coincidentally, he's named John Nada, Nada being Spanish for nothing or nobody. Um, which is part of John Carpenter's larger weird argument in this, which I'll get to in a second. But anyway, so uh, Nada, or Roddy Roddy Piper, is um, walking through the streets of L.A., and he finds these sunglasses. And he puts on the sunglasses, and lo and behold, he sees the truth um, of the civilization that he lives in. And um, it turns out that Earth has been occupied by an invading force, not even a force, an elite conspiracy um, of grotesque 
aliens, sort of skinless skull aliens. And Carpenter had all sorts of theories about why he depicted them that way. And you can only see them when you put the glasses on. Otherwise, you couldn't see them. They just look like normal human beings. And not only that, but almost all the advertising that we see is um, uh, has deep, uh, sinister, subliminal messages buried in it. So like when Piper's walking down the street in downtown LA, probably, you know, I don't know where, um, and sees a giant billboard and says like, come to the Bahamas. And it's got a beautiful woman in a bikini lying down. Um, he puts on the sunglasses and the message underneath it in sort of no frills, black on white text is, um, um, like marry and reproduce and, you know, magazines that have, you know, provocative intellectual kind of covers and all that kind of stuff. When you, um, put on the glasses, all of a sudden it says stuff like conform and obey and, and all these kinds of things. And, and so this is like what starts Nada on this path towards being a revolutionary to overthrow our sinister overlords. And then it becomes a fairly normal, at least when I watched it the first dozen times, a fairly normal, kind of low-budge John Carpenter sci-fi movie where the main character is a pro wrestler and there's going to be a little sort of nodding to pro wrestling in it. Um, it's not as overt as in the movie Jim Cotta. I don't know if anybody's ever heard it, heard of it, or never mind seen it. Um, but Jim Cotta was i'm just making sure i got the full title yeah it's just jim kata terrible martial arts movie uh with this guy who's an olympic medalist i did not remember his name i just looked it up kurt thomas um and he was a big olympic gymnast <laughs> and, and so like he's sort of just gymnastics his way through various sort of bruce lee scenarios with evil henchmen and mobs coming after him and all that kind of stuff. And I, the scene I always remember is in the middle, while he's running in the woods being chased by a bunch of nefarious ninjas or henchmen or something, there is a rock uh, just in the middle of the woods that just coincidentally takes roughly the form of a regulation Olympic pummel horse that he uses to spray kicks like a sprinkler system all over the place. Um, so it's not as, it is not as, 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 as wrestling, pro wrestling indulgent as all that. Um, but, uh, it's not a, you know, it's, I always took it to be what it was as sort of a campy B movie. It wasn't until several years later that I discovered that it is, um, um, considered, and I, I called up the article because I actually wrote a long article about this for National Review. Um, uh, considered literally one of the greatest Marxist films ever met. And all of that stuff about um, hidden messages and advertising, um, all that stuff about enforced conformity and a, a, a hideous ruling class that manipulates the society to turn um, uh, luxuries into wants and to force us into consumerism was was like literally the best adaptation of Frankfurt School Marxism ever made. So I'll read you uh, just a couple paragraphs from this piece I read for NR a few years ago. Um, Even the famous Marxist intellectual 
Slavoj Zizek. I never know how to pronounce the guy's name. Um, the so-called Elvis of cultural theory hailed it in a New York public library lecture as, quote, the true neglected masterpiece of the Hollywood left. A legendary, a legendarily awesome five-minute, 20-second fight scene, that's the thing I was talking about before, according to Zizek, captures the struggle to escape bourgeois capitalist ideology. Quote, ideology is not simply imposed on us, he explains in the documentary, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Ideology is our relationship, our relationship to our social world. We, in a way, enjoy our ideology. To step outside of it is painful. And then I'll skip ahead. Uh, writing in Dissident Voice, a radical newsletter in the, which describes itself as a radical newsletter in the struggle for peace and social justice, the communist writer Christos Kafalis dubs they live the Marxist, this is a quote, the Marxist movie par excellence. He adds that is, quote, one of the most devastating and sharp, sharp criticisms of American imperialism ever made, unquote, representing, quote, in exemplary fashion, the process of neoconservative barbarization in American society, as well as the dynamic of its revolutionary overthrow. The novelist Jonathan Lethem, author of the book, author of a book on They Live, says, quote, it is probably the stupidest film ever to take ideology as its explicit subject. Um, and then, and I, that's the only one that I kind of basically agree with, even though uh, Carpenter clearly did not intend for it to be uh, steeped in doctrinaire Marxist ideology. He didn't know that stuff. He intended it to be basically a shot at uh, Ted Turner for colorizing classic movies, but that's neither here nor there for now. Um, and also he hated Ronald Reagan. So there were a bunch of things I loved about this. I mean, one, I love to discover that people interpret quote unquote art in, in ways that I completely missed. And then when you can't watch it the same way again, I also kind of find it hilarious, um, that these deep, serious, uh, Marxist theorists who come up with these vast, you know, not even just word salads, but, you know, word agricultural centers full of phrases like hermeneutics and whatnot, um, to describe their theories of the world, that it doesn't occur to them or bother them that John Carpenter, and I like John Carpenter, don't get me wrong. Um, but that John Carpenter, a guy who knows none of that stuff, can manage to produce something that summarizes their deeply complex, um, you know, uh, intricately formulated theories about praxis and whatnot. And he can do it with a pro wrestler, which tells you either that John Carpenter is even more of an auteur than we thought he was, or maybe at the end of the day, a lot of Marxist ideology and Marxist theory is really kind of dumb and simplistic. That, you know, because if somebody can just on their own summarize it in artistic fashion, um, suggests it's not that complicated all, after all. And maybe you don't need so many polysyllabic, you know, uh, words to describe uh, your vision. Anyway, that's another thing I think it's funny. But um, the, other the other reason why I'm bringing this up, other than to give David a hard time, is that. Uh, I really wanted some sort of conceit in my book that was like those glasses. Um, 
I am not a Frankfurt School Marxist. Um, I am uh, not a fan of Adorno and Horkheimer um, or Marcuse or any of those guys. Although some of the stuff they write is kind of funny and interesting. I particularly like how I think it was, um, was it Horkheimer? One of those guys who uh, argued that America's fascism was so deep in the warp and woof of, of, of its fabric that the fact that our doors and windows in 1950s America slammed shut was sort of a deliberately fascistic way of designing technology, unlike the, the more sublime, uh, you know, cinches and, and hooks or whatever they used in European windows, you know, the continent where we actually got fascism. But anyway, um, so I'm not a, Frankfurt School Marxist or anything like that, but I really like this idea of looking at the world as if you are a visitor from another planet, right? That you have this, that you don't come in with any preconceptions, that you can see things that, you know, in the same way that most of us, you know, like this phrase I often use, you know, fish don't know they're wet. There are lots of things about American culture that are kind of invisible to us because we just assume that's not culture that's just reality. That's the way people live. And it's only when you like live abroad or visit some truly alien culture where you realize, um, no, we have a culture too here. Americans don't tend to think about that on a day-to-day basis, the way a lot of other societies do, particularly European ones where they're kind of used to looking outside the fishbowl at their own culture. And, you know, ask any Canadian looking down from up there, at America, and they'll definitely see that we have a culture. And if you go up to Canada, um, you'll find that, you know, there are a lot of very nice people up there, but everything is just sort of slightly off, which is, you know, why my wife, whenever she wanted to describe food that didn't taste quite right, she would often just say, it tastes vaguely Canadian. Um, and, and, you know, and some people who really get this are immigrants who, you know, like that's why de Tocqueville was so good about chronicling what American life was like, was that he had just enough critical distance to see the stuff that was invisible to us. And I like this idea of doing that with humanity. And I, you know, for working on my book, I read all of this sort of uh, sociology stuff, Durkheim and Ernest Gellner and Robin Fox and all these people. And I've never really been a huge fan of sociology, but there's this really cool stuff in it that I just sort of was too dismissive of that has this, that looks to find what is common to every culture. Um, uh, even cultures that look really, really different. And so I wanted to have some sort of conceit at the beginning of my book where it was like putting on those glasses. And I just couldn't come up with anything that was either not derivative or forced or belabored or whatever. So I ended up using this, which I've talked about a zillion times on this podcast, so I don't need to belabor it. I ended up using this thought experiment from, uh, gosh, it's going to kill me. I can't remember his name right now, but a guy at Yale. I mean, I credit him in the book. It's not like I'm, I'm plagiarizing. But anyway, it's this, this idea about what if you visited Earth, if you were like a, a chronicler of, of progress of Homo sapiens from, and you were, you were charged with visiting earth every 10,000 years to see how we're progressing. 
And part of my argument is, is that if you came, you know, if you, if you first started showing up 250,000 years ago, looking at Homo sapiens, you would write in your journal of observations, semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food. And uh, you'd come back 10,000 years later and you'd look down at Homo sapiens and you'd write semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food, no change. And then you come back in 10,000 years, semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food, no change. You would do this 24 times, uh, you do this 23 times, and basically you wouldn't see very much change. I mean, obviously this is a generalization, migration patterns change, diets change, but on the 24th time, you would see amazing changes. You would see the emergence of city-states and agriculture, which are not possible without city-states. Um, I'm sorry, city-states are not possible without agriculture. Um, you would see, you know, uh, early metallurgy and stonework. You would see some really fetching clay pots. You'd see all sorts of interesting things. Um, and then when you came back in 10,000 years for your 25th visit, your spaceship would be spotted by NORAD. And the point of this is that almost everything that we associate with human change has happened in the last 10,000 years. But in reality, it's only, but, and this is the point of Suicide of the West to a large extent, or the, one of the, the central tenets of the book, organizing principles, or organizing observations of the book, is that most of the stuff that we actually really associate with progress has happened only in the last 300 years or so. And this is Deirdre McCloskey's great fact. Um, this is the, you know, this is what happens out of what I call the miracle, because we still don't exactly, we still can't explain exactly why and when it happened. But we just had this huge sudden explosion in prosperity and wealth and, and, and over time, liberty uh, that came from, you know, this Lockean revolution or whatever you want to call it. And the scientific revolution is part of it and all sorts of other things are part of it. And that's all fine. But that's not what I'm supposed to be talking about. I wanted to have something like the glasses to sort of make this point. And so anyway, that brings me to today's G-File. How's that for some throat clearing introduction? Um, where uh, I started off, and again, I didn't plan this. I was just, I thought it was really funny. The New York Times uh, had a uh, big piece explaining how um, Jeffrey Tubin lost his job. And that's sort of how the thing was framed in the headline and the subhead, which I thought was funny because this is not a mystery. We know why Jeffrey Tubin lost his job. And again, I want to caution listeners. I, uh, there was a lot of blowback for the G file I did a couple months ago about the Tubin thing. I'm going to be tasteful in all of this. So don't worry. Um, but simply put what he did, um, is a fireable offense. And, you know, so it's not like there was more to the story. That was the story. And then so it had a lot of just bland filler stuff in it until almost the very end where Malcolm Gladwell says, um, actually, I'll, I'll read it to you because um, I, I want to do it justice. So, again, you know, uh, Jeffrey Tubin was. Um, caught in a zoom call in an, in the beginning stages of, uh, an onanistic detour. I think that's all we need to say. And he was in lost his job for it at the New Yorker and Malcolm Gladwell. This is from the New York, this is the passage from the New York times. Malcolm Gladwell, one of the magazine's best known contributors said in an interview, quote, I read the Condé Nast news release 
And I was puzzled because I couldn't find any intellectual justification for what they were doing. They just assumed he had done something terrible, but never told us what the terrible thing was. And my only feeling, the only way I could explain it, was that Condé Nast had taken an unexpected turn toward a, a traditional Catholic teaching, unquote. Mr. Gladwell then took out his Bible and read to a reporter an allegory from Genesis 38 in which God strikes down a man for succumbing to the sin of self-gratification. Okay, so that's, that's originally what sort of pulled me into this, is I just thought that was hilarious, right? That, you know, and, and not to get deep in the weeds of what I actually wrote, but like, we've been going, it's been what, three years since the Me Too thing started? It's been longer than that in terms of like, you know, the feminist effort to construct this new morality and yada, yada, yada. And not all of that effort is wrong or bad. I'm not saying it is. Um, and Gladwell, who's a well-read, <laughs> intelligent guy, the only explanation he could come up with is that the suits at the company that publishes not only the New Yorker, but Glamour and Teen Vogue and Vogue and Vanity Fair and a bunch of other glossy titles that, you know, sells sex and all of these kinds of things. And like Teen Vogue might as well be, you know, the minutes of the Bulgarian Politburo some days, just with, with, with more push-up bras, given the stuff that they write in that thing. But anyway, that these guys had suddenly turned to sort of ultra-montane Catholic social teaching, because there's no other explanation, those are his words, for why they would fire Jeffrey Tubin for exposing himself inadvertently at a meeting and um, badgering the witness. And, uh, and that's just fascinating to me. That is bizarre. And it's bizarre as a general proposition, but it's specifically bizarre because Gladwell is one of these guys, one of the reasons I'm kind of a fan of Gladwell, I don't agree with him on everything, but one of the reasons why I like Gladwell's stuff is he's one of these guys who is sort of one of these put on the they live glasses guys, right? He's one of these guys who um, tries to be detached and step back and use social science and 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 even you know uh, evolutionary science and and psychology psychology and all this kind of stuff to explain human behaviors. And sometimes he's really really good at this. And yet in this moment when you know Jeffrey Tubin was behaving like a guy who would get kicked out of a public library for doing something like this, he, the only way he could fathom why a company would let Tubin go is because they went opus day on him all of a sudden, which is just so weird. And um, so one of the reasons why this stuff was in my head lately is I got into a thing on Twitter about how bad Pleasantville is. I think the movie Pleasantville I know this sounds like a non sequitur, but it's not. Um, Pleasantville is maybe at the top of the list of a bunch of these movies from the 1990s that are really well made, um, but really terrible. And uh, terrible in their, in their message, in their thinking, in their argument. You know, other ones are like American Beauty, which at its core is cliched garbage, but it's really well made, so you, you, don't, you miss it the first time. Um, there was a movie Grand Canyon that was a lot like this. There were a bunch of these sort of Lawrence Kasdan and I can't remember the other guys, but you know, this is sort of, uh, baby boomer midlife crisis angst things that are these deep indictments of 
American society. And, and Pleasantville in particular was one that was so heavy handed in this sort of uh, almost Frankfurt School Marxist attack on the alleged conformity of the 1950s and the perils of nostalgia and how, you know, it sort of exemplified this thing that a certain breed of Hollywood liberal thinks that they're the only people who've ever discovered or enjoyed sex and that they must teach all the fuddy-duddies who disagree with them on some public policy issue or some political issue that the reason why they disagree with them is because they're all repressed jackwads. And um, the heavy-handedness of Pleasantville just really pissed me off and it's been sort of playing around in my head. And then I read this thing about the Tubin thing and you know, and what last week I wrote a little bit about Puritanism and it, it seems to me like this is a perfectly weird yet perfect illustration of, of the, one of the central dynamics screwing with American life today. Uh, it's not exactly a novel insight, right? But the, the secular left, secular humanists, progressives, woke, whatever you want to call them, um, uh, they really, really, really dislike traditional, biblically based, more, you know, uh, religiously based morality. They think it's dangerous. It leads to the Handmaid's Tale. It's illegitimate. It's it's evil in one way or another. And I and I do not mean that every single progressive or liberal who's listening to this podcast fits that caricature or that stereotype. I'm talking about this as a generalization in terms of the kind of stuff that bubbles to the top in, in, in thumbsuck op-eds in the New York Times and in uh, sort of woke documentaries and, and you know, uh, Salon, Slate, The Nation, that kind of stuff, right? And, uh, and the way to think about what's going on is that they've, you know, the way the right sees it is, is wrong. Um, and they see that what, I mean, that's not wrong. It's, it's, it's got a blind spot or two, you know, the right thinks that these people are all nihilists and, uh, licentious, uh, you know, sybarites who just, um, want to lift all sexual taboos and norms. And if it feel, feels good, do it. And that's not true. In fact, what the left has been doing in fits and starts for 50 years is trying to come up with a coherent system of morals um, and, and ethics about that govern sexual life um, and sexual relations and all of these things that is not based in traditional religious sources of morality um, of any kind, but is instead based in some secular humanistic or feminist notions i mean i we i don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole but it is it is it is not in any sense tradition based or god based because they find that stuff illegitimate and that's fine that's an argument we can have that argument right but in the process they're constantly creating new regulations and new taboos about sex um i mean it's 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 you know, you can make fun of Liberty University all you like, and given its recent leadership, I have no problem with that. But, you know, the for the vast, 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 overwhelming majority of college students who are having 
um, their sexual relations and, and sexual attitudes policed, it's not by uh, theocratic religious Bible thumpers. It's by left-wing college administrators. You know, and you have all of these, you know, horror stories, which people make too much about, but still are horror stories about, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of rules about how you have to give consent at every stage of fooling around. Um, that there are, uh, you know, that there's all of this language policing about what you can say and how you can say it. Um, more pernicious is like these attempts that we saw, particularly towards the end of the Obama administration, of getting rid of due process and uh, cases about, you know, allegations of sexual abuse or sexual assault or harassment, where the burden of proof now rested on the accused rather than the accuser. Um, all of the scalps collected by the Me Too movement were not collected by, you know, uh, post-liberal Catholics in frocks. They were collected by woke 20 and 30-something journalists uh, at, you know, at all of these publications, many of which Condé Nast owns. And uh, they, you know, it's the left is, broadly speaking, it's you know, this is lar large part what political correctness is other than the, the, you know, there's the bad faith parts about it, which I've talked about a lot, which are used as ways to sort of trap and ensnare people and, and cancel people for simply getting, um, the, the, the terminology wrong. And that's why they keep changing the terminology so they can keep catching you. Um, and sometimes they change it in real time. Remember during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings where they literal, literally change the dictionary definition of sexual preference in real time during the hearings, just so they can make Amy Coney Barrett look bigoted. I mean, there's a lot of that bad stuff, which I hate and is evil and it's totalitarian and it's, it's bad faith and yuck, poo, boo, all that. But then there's a part about political correctness, which is just simply trying to come up with good manners, trying to come up with a system of speaking and increasingly and behaving in an increasingly diverse society that shows respect to other people, that makes them feel as if they are fully human beings with agency. And, you know, uh, and that's why it doesn't drive me crazy that we are capitalizing black in newspapers. I mean, I think it's a bad turn towards identity politics, but at the end of the day, it's not that big a deal. And certainly when, when blacks wanted to get rid of the word Negro and go to black, that's, to you know, you, people should people should be called what they want to be called for the most part. And, you know, you can get into arguments about transgender stuff another time. As a general rule, the good part about political correctness is just creating new codes and manners that deal with a changing society. And that's all fine by me. I mean, I don't necessarily like the answers they all come up to, but I think it's a good faith effort. Um, but that project is a left-wing project. And it goes overboard sometimes, um, often, I would argue, very often, I would argue. But what's fascinating, again, is that Malcolm Gladwell is totally blind to that, at least for the purposes of this article or this point. And instead, you know, his, the only explanation, again, in his words, that, could, that he could reach was that Kananast had gone papist which is just so weird. And so this gets to this larger point that I'm trying to make, which is that 
right now we have two competing, broadly speaking, gross generalization, yada, 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 um, tribes who are basically dominating big chunks of, of political and cultural discourse. And they draw their more, their, their inspiration, um, and their first principles about sexual conduct, social mores, all that kind of stuff from very different sources. And so they don't really know how to talk, excuse me, talk to each other. And the, um, but the funny thing is, is that the reality is, is that both of them are in terms of to borrow a Marxist term praxis in terms of the places where theory actually meets reality. Um, uh, they're not that different. You know, when Mike Pence, and I think everyone now knows I'm not a huge fan of Mike Pence anymore, but, uh, you know, when Mike Pence, uh, was revealed to have these rules with his wife where he won't, um, he won't attend functions where alcohol is served without his wife present. And he won't have, he won't dine privately with another woman, um, alone. There either has to be somebody else with them or his wife. Now, these are not my rules. I don't have these kinds of rules with my wife. And, um, but, but I don't think there's anything evil about these rules. I don't think there's anything that deserved the mockery and the scorn that was heaped upon Mike Pence. You know, uh, David French, when he went off to Iraq, he had this arrangement with his wife about how they were going to conduct themselves that all of these jerks heaped scorn on when this was revealed. And I just, I, I have no problem with these setting up these kinds of rules. And so long as they're not used to hold back, you know, women's career advance or anything, anything like that. But what Mike Pence was doing was just simply drawing, um, bright lines around, um, conduct so that he wouldn't get into trouble and that there wouldn't even be an appearance of trouble. And he may have been drawing from both, you know, conventional bourgeois Christian morality and also political expediency, but I don't care. His actions, you know, uh, you know, uh, again, I don't necessarily agree with them, but I don't think they're unreasonable. And, uh, nor do I think it is inconceivable that a bunch of sort of left-wing feminist types at Brown couldn't come up with some very similar rule. Um, you know, that, that no one on the left would mock. And, uh, and, and so the point is, is that, you know, I'm going to put it this way, as I say in the, the G file, back when this country was like descriptively, I don't mean like aspirationally or nostalgically or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, back when you could actually describe the United States as a Christian nation, um, we still had all sorts of flaws, right? But we um, had our arguments amongst ourselves with a shared sense, a shared set of um, vocabulary and reference points, you know, chiefly the Bible. Um, and both defenders and opponents of slavery quoted the Bible. Uh, but the, 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 the better illustration of what I'm getting at was Utah. When Utah was run by, you know, when Utah was not a state yet, uh, they wanted to become a state. They petitioned to become a state. The United States said, no, because you guys, you have polygamy and we don't like polygamy. 
And Utah, the Church of Latter-day Saints, eventually said, okay, we're going to get rid of polygamy. And then everyone was like, okay, you can become a state now, right? Because this country actually has a pretty well-worked-out tradition of theological pluralism, but moral consensus. And that's gone now. Now we have competing theologies, and, um, and therefore we cannot countenance the other side's moral actions, even as a, pra- when a, as a pragmatic matter, they're pretty reasonable. And, um, and so anyway, that's what I got into in the G-File. I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. But my, my, you know, I, I'm doing this more and more because I feel so alienated from a lot of my team and so disgusted by what some people are doing. Um, you know, you know, including calling for martial law, which I just think is, is bad. Or, you know, as the guys in Claremont world these days, um, are, uh, desecrating essentially Harry Jaffa's grave by writing thoughtful, uh, you can't see my air quotes, writing supposedly serious, uh, debates and discussions, hashing out, uh, the justifications for secession. And I want no part of that stuff. I feel alienated from it. And, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like I can like look with my they live glasses at both sides and see these weird sort of tribal things. And which gets me back to the they live point in, in, in sort of my book is that every culture everywhere has customs, taboos, modes of discourse and behavior that seem weird from the outside, but seem internally consistent from the inside. And these things form around different things that are actually universal, right? I mean, you can come up with a system of dealing with how men should treat women that is wholly consistent with most mainstream notions of serious Christianity that, um, that in terms of the actual behavior manifested on display would look very similar to whatever the a system of atheistically based uh, secular humanist behavior would be. You know, treat people with respect and good manners. You know, as, you know, as Irving Crystal used to say, most of the things your grandmother told you turned out to be true. Um, show, take people as you find them. Don't be rude. Don't sexually assault people. Don't expose yourself on Zoom calls. These kinds of things, there should be a hugely broad consensus around. But because we draw from completely different sets of theory about where morality should be derived from, we think that unless the other side agrees with our assumptions, their actual behavior doesn't count for anything. And, um, I'm getting this convoluted again. Maybe I really shouldn't have even done this thing. But uh, I, I just find like it fascinating when you look around the world. There's this guy, Donald um, Brown, who wrote, came up with this list of human universals. Everywhere in society, every society, everywhere and every when, pretty much, has a certain set of characteristics that are universal, right? Every society that's ever existed people give preferences to their family over strangers. They give preferences to their friends over strangers. Every society that has ever existed, there are taboos against certain kinds of incest. Now, they can be overcome, but you can see the taboo by the effort to try to overcome some of these things. But that is, these are just sort of uh, 
there were human universals. And the effort to create new moral codes that is being done by the left is an effort to reassert some of those human universals just with a different coat of paint and a different set of arguments around them. And I just think it's fascinating that Gladwell couldn't see it. And now I'm, I'm truly done with that. Uh, what else? I had a great conversation with Matt Continetti uh, earlier this week. Um, if you've got any long drives coming up and you're sick of this one, uh, you might want to listen to that. We geek out about a bunch of conservative stuff. We talk about Georgia and Goldwater and, and um, anti-communism and and all sorts of things. And one of the things that we briefly talked about actually became uh, the subject for my column, which is, I guess, out today. Um, I just don't buy the the glib use of the term Cold War for what we're entering into with China. This is not to say that I have rose-colored glasses about China. I've been saying on this podcast for a year now that we are going to be, there's a consensus that we're going to need to be and are going to be hawkish towards China in the years ahead. Uh, the only question is whether we're going to be dumb about it or smart about it. Um, and I pr would prefer that we be smart about it. But I think that the term Cold War, it's, it's, it's sort of like generals fighting the last war. It is a prism that really just doesn't apply to how China operates. You know, the Soviet Union, it was an evil empire. The Soviet Union was a true threat to the United States of America. Um, and to the West, uh, the cold war in my mind, uh, was entirely justified conceptually and strategically. Even if you can say the Vietnam war was a mistake or age of the Contras was a mistake, happy to have those arguments, even if, or maybe not even those agreements or maybe those agreements, but as a broad matter, I am through and through anti-communist guy, but the Soviet Union is just a very different place than uh, 21st century China. The Soviet Union uh, actually tried to live down to its principles about how to organize the economy, which, um, you know, they had, you know, the, the economic system, a lot of conservatives sometimes don't like to hear this, but they actually had massive improvements in productivity um, and economic output in the early years of the Soviet Union. And the reason for it is, is that even if you um, kill and enslave huge numbers of people in the process, moving an entire society from ox-drawn plows to tractors will yield massive um, uh, improvements in economic output. But, but they couldn't sustain or, or scale or, or maintain um, that level of innovation, and they had an economic system that ultimately stifled innovation, stifled so the scientific method, stifled economic growth, also stifled human freedom and enslaved nations. Um, but it made it just ultimately very, very difficult to compete with um, a free market society like the United States. And uh, that's not, you know, that's not China's problem. Um, you know, and you could argue that 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 you know or I would argue, is that China is much more like early 20th century Germany or Japan than it is like the Soviet Union. 
right? Early 20th century Germany and Japan were countries that were getting rich fast. They were uh, uh, consumed with nationalist fervor. Um, and they were desperate for prestige around the world, particularly lost notions of prestige, which played heavily into the ro romantic ethos of both countries. Um, you know, and what was it? Kaiser Wilhelm used to say, a place in the sun is what Germany wanted. They felt that they had long due status as a, as a great power or even a superpower, and they had been denied it by outside forces. And that's very much the arguments you get in China. Um, but China does not have a political system or an economic system that immiserates its people. It has a, as an economic system that is still delivering, I mean, they lie. It's not delivering as well as they claim, but it's still delivering massive economic growth. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the Chinese people put up with the system. And, uh, and now the China, you know, the Chinese communist party recognizes that the economic growth stuff may be slowing down. And that even if the economic growth stuff isn't slowing down, they're developing such a massive middle class that historically the middle class is what drives democratic transitions. And, um, you know, because I mean, that's the story of the bourgeois in France and, and, and UK and Holland is that as the government starts to rely on the wealth created by the middle class, the middle class starts to demand representation for their taxation. And, um, and the Chinese government, in an effort to forestall that, is whipping up nationalism, whipping up, you know, all sorts of notions of national grievance to 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 keep people happy and or keep people, you know, supportive. And uh, I think that's just a very different dynamic than what we saw with the Soviet Union. Even though, you know, I will argue, I have a whole chapter that never made it into suicide of the West about how the Soviet union became nationalistic almost immediately after the Bolshevik revolution within five, maybe 10 years. Uh, maybe I'll talk about that at some point on here. Uh, cause I, I'm sort of fascinated with it. Uh, I, my view is that there has never been a socialist country that didn't turn to nationalism pretty quickly because that was the only way they could maintain the legitimacy of the regime because it turns out that most people really don't care about uniting the workers of the world. They care about, you know, helping out their neighbors and themselves. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Um, but that workers of the world unite crap and it was really dumb. Um, that appealed to a lot of Americans in ways that Chinese ideology doesn't appear to appeal to any Americans. You know, you got this, what, uh, Fang Fang, who's like the honey trap Mata Hari um, uh, from China, who was apparently working Eric Swalwell uh, and a bunch of other American politicians. Uh, she wasn't converting true believers like Alger Hiss into, into spies. She was like using old fashioned, you know, lady spycraft of sex and money. Or at least that's what it sounds like. And that's certainly the case with most of the people who've been caught up in espionage stuff for China. They're not doing it because they think that China is the wave of the future and that we need to be, you know, get on board the, the, the Chinese vision of whatever they call communism. And it's because people like money, you know, or people like, you know, power, or people don't like to be blackmailed or people like sex. And, um, so this is not me trying to belittle the threat from China. It's just, I think you got to be realistic about what it is. 
We don't have large swaths of intellectuals in America, at least not since the 1990s, when Tom Friedman was writing all that bilge about China, um, who see China as a viable alternative to the um, liberal democratic capitalism of the United States of America. Um, you know, and I think we're just lucky that Sweden and Denmark, even though they're not as socialist as Bernie Sanders thinks, aren't superpowers with aims of taking over and of subverting the American government and taking over because you would get a lot of useful idiots signing up to, to get on board the Swedish project if that were going on. No, China is a, is much more of a classic great power, uh, nation state that is looking to be a regional and perhaps global hegemon. And they, uh, have all sorts of, uh, nationalistic notions about their destiny. And the only thing that they have in common with classic Marxist Leninism is the supremacy of the one party state and really just the one party, but they're not a communist country in any, any real sense. And, and so borrowing these concepts, like from the cold war, uh, which come with them all sorts of implicit policies, I just think is a bad idea, but, um, we can, um, revisit that another time. I'm sure. Uh, what else? Um, oh, sorry. Maybe on this Eric Swalwell thing. Look, I mean, I, um, I think it's worth covering. I don't think it's worth covering as much as people are covering it. Uh, the Russia hack was a much, much bigger national security story than this thing that happened with Swalwell. But for understandable reasons, a lot of Republicans hate Swalwell's guts because he's kind of a smarmy jerk. And because they're trying to sort of, you know, turn this into a, you know, Benghazi kind of scandal where, and it's sexy and all that kind of stuff. And so people are getting their panties in a bunch about it. But I, I think it's, I, I, so I think it's wildly overblown. Um, but at the same time, as I said in a special report the other night, you know, Swallow has no right to be on the intelligence committee. There's no like, this isn't like some illegal taking where the government comes along and takes your ranch because you're entitled to your position on the intelligence committee. Um, if he's not going to have like a full disclosure thing where he really walks through what happened, even if, even if it's in some respect unfair to him, given that the real facts are something else. Um, and he just doesn't want to talk about it because he's embarrassed. Uh, take him off the intelligence committee. I mean, it's not, I had no sense that he is some huge national asset that we must have on that committee. And there's no one qualified in the ranks of the Democrats to replace him. He's, you know, it, this is all just, but I think this is all partisan, you know, uh, posturing for the most part. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things that much. What trying to trying to do matters a lot. Um, but the swallow part of it is, is really just, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's late night cable TV and talk radio fodder more than anything else. And it's not worth getting in your pant, your panties in a bunch about, but you know what? If you use Tommy John, you wouldn't get your panties in a bunch, no matter how worked up you got about Eric Swalwell. You've had enough to deal with this year. So don't overthink your holiday gifts since we've all been living in our sweatpants anyway Give your loved ones some pro-level Tommy John loungewear. This holiday season, Tommy John is making sure you can give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list and yourself. As Jeffrey Tubin might say, never forget yourself. With Tommy John's men's and women's loungewear, say goodbye to old stained sweatpants. 
Tommy John loungewear is luxuriously soft and guaranteed to fit perfectly with the same level of comfort and innovation that goes into everything Tommy John makes. Plus, Tommy John's loungewear pajamas and underwear come in limited edition sets, perfect for gifting, but they sell out quick. Tommy John underwear puts a permanent end to sticking and chafing and bunching, as I mentioned before. So order now and experience it yourself. And there's no risk with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Order now. Go to TommyJohn.com slash remnant. That's Tommy John, T-O-M-M-Y-J-O-H-N.com slash remnant for up to $30 off site-wide and get last-minute holiday deals for a limited time only. Get up to $30 off for a limited time at TommyJohn.com slash remnant. TommyJohn.com slash remnant. See site for details. We thank Tommy John for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Uh, I apologize for getting your ad so late. When I'm trying to figure out what I want to say, sometimes I just wander off into the snow rhetorically, and then it takes me a time to retrace my steps back. So I apologize for that. Um, as longtime listeners know, I am actually a huge fan of Tommy John. Uh, it's, it's, it really is a great product. And, um, uh, I have lots of Tommy John products of my own, but I will not discuss it further than that for the time being. So, um, what else? So we had, so I think we've tested the limits and I don't want to be unfair to my friend, Scott Winship, because I thought it was a great podcast, but we had him on to talk about poverty and just going by the reaction from folks. I think we've now found the outer edge of how, how wonky we can get on this podcast while still holding on to our audience. Um, I thought it was really interesting, but, um, um, I get the sense that some people, uh, don't like hearing quintile all of that much, but I thought it was sort of a really important discussion and it's worth, you know, it's just sort of worth understanding that when people talk about, you know, inequality, that doesn't necessarily mean they're talking about poverty and that when we're talking about poverty, um, we're not necessarily talking about inequality. Yes. Poor people by very definition. Um, are suffering from economic inequality compared to rich people. But as, as Scott was pointing out, just the, the raw number, you know, the raw share of Americans who are truly poor is wildly lower than it was 40, 50 years ago. And we tend to let a lot of people who talk about inequality steal base when they talk about poverty or talk about inequality to make it sound like they're still describing, you know, what was it, FDR said, a third of a nation, or, you know, Michael Harrington's Other America, there are still pockets of severe, serious economic poverty in America. But those pockets have been shrinking for a very long time. And that's not to say that the working class and, and, the, and the lower middle class or whatever designation you want to give people aren't struggling. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have standards that lift people up as much as possible um, and that do more. but if you were to listen to a lot of people on, uh, you know, MSNBC or in democratic debates, talk about inequality, they, they often give you the impression that they're really talking about fighting poverty and they're not, they're talking about 
you know, improving the light, the, the, the lot of people who maybe their lot needs to be improved, but they are not in the kind of poverty that they want to leave, you know, leave the impression on. And I think one of the most important points that Scott made is that there's no reason why when we talk about poverty that we have to only talk about financial poverty or economic poverty. Um, and when we do that, I mean, look, I mean, uh, economic poverty is a real thing, right? Um, but when we reduce it to the idea of poverty to purely an economic phenomenon, um, we leave out a lot of the possible ways to actually fix economic poverty. If, if, if you say poverty is, you know, that the only way to think about poverty is as a nail, then we're only going to use hammers to fix it. And as he points out, you know, there's spiritual poverty, there's, um, you know, poverty of social uh, capital, there's uh, spiritual poverty, um, there's, you know, all sorts of different ways of thinking about why people are miserable, even if they have money, right? You know, the, one of the perverse benefits of the time when the, when the poor made up a major segment of society was that lots of poor people lived in communities where everybody was poor. So it doesn't, you don't feel poor when everybody around you is poor, particularly when you don't have mass communication that is constantly reminding you that not very far from you are very rich people who are living, you know, you know, in luxury. Now, you know, because of the way social media and mass media works, everybody knows if they're poor that there are other people, there are lots of other people who aren't. And that's one of the reasons why there's sort of a, uh, you know, that's why we talk about inequality more in some ways is because you feel it more. It's sort of like this fear of missing out thing that plagues teenagers. And, but if, you know, I, as I, and I sincerely believe this and I would offend some people, but, you know, uh, and I'm not trying to do blame the victim stuff, but I believe in this su success sequence stuff, not as a cure all, right. You know, the success sequence, if you didn't listen to that or haven't heard me talk about it a million times, is just this idea of, you know, it's, it's sort of a checklist type success sequence and you can, uh, read all about it. It's a lot, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's an idea that is as, as agreed upon at the Brookings Institute as it is at AI. And it's just basically this, this thing where you say, um, don't, you know, get as much education as you can, uh, graduate from high school at the very least graduate from college if you can, don't have a kid until you do that, and um, don't have a kid until you get married. And if you follow those steps, you're not guaranteed to be rich, but your odds of being poor are just wildly reduced. And if you've never listened to like the podcast I did with uh, Tom Sowell, you know, one of his points about, you know, black poverty was if you start controlling for various cultural or behavioral things, black poverty often disappears in the data. I'm not saying that black poor people disappear. They still exist. But, um, you know, he had this point, I wish I had it off the top of my head, but he had this point uh, that, you know, that among household, among married households where uh, residents had a library card, um, black people were 
um, above the median black income was above the median white income, right? And what his point there, and even if I'm messing it up a little, you get the point. The point there is just simply that if you follow what used to be considered bourgeois, uh, you know, just old-fashioned no- notions of uh, living within your means, thrift, hard work, marriage, working hard to support your kid, delaying gratifications to you know for the better uh, for your, your for your family, attending church or synagogue or any of that kind of stuff, all of those things which. A lot of people on the left want to now associate with patriarchy and white people, which I think is just among the most evil things you can do in our culture. Um, But I I should be clear about that. I'm not saying that it's evil to call it white. I'm saying that by calling it white, it's evil because you are trying to create a cultural norm that says you shouldn't be behaving like that if you're not white, because that's not part of your culture or something, which I just think is just hot garbage. Um, you know, Asians are more successful than, than Jews and white Christians in this country because in many ways they're much more bourgeois than whites and Jews. And I think that's great. And I wish that kind of thing um, were highlighted more. But just this sort of this basic notion of the sort of Protestant work ethic, be honest, be decent. Um, treat people as you find them, uh, save. If you follow those kinds of, seek the best education that you can, um, uh, you know, if you just follow those sort of boring bourgeois conventional notions of moral behavior, again, there's no guarantee that you're going to be rich. In fact, there's no guarantee that you won't be poor. But your odds just, just go through the roof if you do that. And there are all sorts of reasons for it, but one of the main ones is that if you think of poverty as something more than just simply income, if you've got a family, if you've got friends, if you have people who respect you, then you're you have capital, you have wealth. Um, you know that old what is it, the old phrase? You know, someone with friends is, is rich, or the richest man in the world is a man who has friends, or something like that. There's a lot of truth in that because. There's um, there's just so many more resources you have, and so much more psychological or spiritual contentment you have when there are people who rely on you and that you rely upon. There are, there are people, you know, this notion of earned success, which I've talked about so much, you know, which I get originally from Arthur Brooks, but just this idea of being valued that if you disappeared tomorrow, you'd be missed that people need you, that is a great source of, 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 of wealth in the sort of social capital sense, but it also is the path to creating economic success as well, because those, those behaviors are rewarded in the marketplace. Those behaviors are war- rewarded in a community. People who find you trustworthy and reliable and honest and decent will give you more responsibilities. And, um, and anyway, I think it's just an important way to think about these things that is lost on a lot of people. And, you know, and I think that, you know, in some ways, Donald Trump is a terrible example for a lot of people because he does not model conventional bourgeois notions of morality and decency. And he is sort of, you know, popularizing in a lot of ways, the sort of Gordon Gecko 
understanding of what character is in a capitalist society and you know, value of greed and all this stuff. And um, but we don't need to get in the Trump stuff. I'm so glad I haven't had to write about Trump this week. Um, so with that, um, I guess I'm going to be done. I mean, this has gone on for a while, and um, um, I'm so looking forward to the weekend and a little bit of a break next week. Um, we'll have some podcast stuff next week. Stay, you know, look for it. Um, it'll be a little different. And we'll have um, at least one G file next week, but I haven't worked all that out yet. Um, so you're just going to have to stay tuned on that. And other than that, um, thanks for everything. This has been a wild. If I don't talk to you live, you know, uh, this has been a wild year. And I am so incredibly grateful for all of our, our paid members and for just our supporters in general. And for my colleagues here at the dispatch and uh let's all please have a a good thought or a prayer for uh david french and his uh granddaughter who's uh doing much better than we all feared but has still got a major struggle ahead and uh please think of lila and uh his whole family and i'll see you guys next time